It's Stephen Henderson, and today on the podcast, we're going to talk about a recent report from the Annie E. Casey Foundation that highlights the gaps in educational outcomes that exist between African-American students and other students, both nationally and especially here in Michigan. We're going to talk with Dr. Nikolai Vitti, who is the superintendent of schools here in Detroit, which is the largest school district and, of course, the most heavily African-American school district in Michigan. And then we're going to talk with an analyst from the Brookings Institution about how this looks nationally and what some other states are doing to try to close those gaps. We've got Dr. Nikolai Vidi here. He is the Detroit Public Schools Community District Superintendent. Dr. Vidi, great to see you. Welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. So let's start with this re- report, Race for Results from the uh, Annie Casing Foundation. When you look at the report, uh, what does it say to you about Detroit and about our kids in Detroit? Well, honestly, not surprising. Uh, always appreciate these reports, but I think for for someone like myself and so many others that have been in the trenches doing the work, um, it's not a surprise. Um, we see the impact that concentrated poverty and and just the history of race um, and the injustices linked to that, how it all comes together uh, as a collective challenge for children and, and those uh, of us educators that work with children every day in our schools. You know, I, I think of this um, saying that's often used um, you know, when white America has, um, you know, the flu, uh, black America has uh, pneumonia. Um, and that's, you know, what I think about when I see this report. And when you think about the, the status or the state of affairs for public education in Michigan, we're behind. Um, you know, whether you're looking at white students, black students, higher socioeconomic, lower socioeconomic, across the board, we're not competing with other states throughout the nation. So, when you see white children, for example, that on average are more privileged, um, not doing as well as their peers across the nation, then it only makes sense that black children will not do as well as their white peers, but also um, other black children throughout the country. So that's you know not a function of intelligence; it's a function of disinvestment, um, an historical disinvestment. And I don't you know you 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 see that more than anywhere else in Detroit when you know the history of. Um, inadequate funding throughout the state with public education, uh, a lack of systems and processes for accountability, equitable funding, and then the disaster that we saw with emergency management and a choice system that had no thoughtfulness, guardrails, um, and or so- Or even accountability. Or accountability. So, you know, but, you know, despite all of that, there's it's unquestionable that over the last seven years, we've made significant improvement in the school district. And we've done that by doing what we should have been doing, investing in teachers, curriculum that's at grade level, um, investing in buildings as much as we can, and investing in wraparound services and the arts. Um, and so we've, we're making progress. I, I commend the governor and the, the most recent legislature for, for moving to higher levels of funding. But, you know, in Michigan, we're still not at equal and we're definitely not at equitable. And it's a hard conversation because people don't want to see their tax dollars theoretically going to other children, and then that becomes even more complicated when we add the issue of race. Uh, but that's that's what this report tells us, that if we want to see a difference in achievement and opportunity, we have to invest um, differently and uh, more equitably. Yeah. I, I, I've always thought of your role as uh, almost dual in this conversation. One is external, right? Uh, uh, spreading the message about what 
children in this district need, how different that looks from other districts, even some right, uh, you know, across the street from us uh, in, in in the suburbs. But then also uh, focusing the efforts of the district internally in the right way to make sure that what we do have, the resources that we that we end up with, uh, are deployed in a way that that address uh, these gaps. So I want to talk about both of those kind of separately. You, you mentioned uh, the, the the questions about about funding already, and I want to get your sense of whether we're making any progress uh, with that, especially now that we have a Democratic governor and uh, complete Democratic control of the legislature. Um, but I also want to talk. I want to talk first about uh, internally. What do you do? How do you close? This gap by by uh, either program or support or um, or or other uh, other approaches inside the district to make sure that uh, that our kids get what what they need. Yeah, and and I think you you framed it the right way. Um, you have to own the responsibility that you have, which you know for me was improving the system within, and and that just started with doing what should have been happening a long time ago, mainly invest in teachers. You know, teachers are the epicenter of reform and improvement because they're with the kids on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, inheriting a school system that had 400 teacher vacancies, and now we're, you know, we're roughly 40 vacancies right now, uh, a significant improvement a couple of years ago, we even had a surplus of teachers um, right before the pandemic hit and during the pandemic. Um, but with that said, what do you do? Uh, you invest in teachers. Um, you have to have certified, well-trained, well-supported teachers that are willing to build relationships with students and stay in it over time, which we lost um, with emergency management and, you know, the, in many ways, the deterioration of the teaching profession um, across the board. So that's, that's what you're seeing nationally impacting you know, places like Detroit more, uh, going back to that saying that I, that I opened up with, but um, curriculum that's actually at grade level because we know students can function at grade level and above, and, and our curriculum has to move toward making sure students are college ready and career ready. So that was an improvement. And then investing in things like art and music in every school and wraparound services, counselors in every school, mental health support in every school. Um, and so the governor's funding, the legislature's funding has allowed us to invest more in teachers, definitely invest more in wraparound services, but shifting from the internal to the external, the reality is still, as of today, DPSED receives about $9,600 when you combine state and local funding. Places like Centerline, Southfield, Birmingham, Bloomfield Hills, state and local funding, $13,000 per student. So Again, we're, we're still not at equal. I say, let's get to equal and then let's get to equitable. We've seen increases in at-risk money, uh, and that helps. Um, but, you know, one problem with that is that, that that funding is not flexible. And so state and local money, you can use it any way, teacher salaries, facilities, transportation, and that's general fund. And that's one of the main challenges that we still have in DPSCD is, one, we're not equally, equitably funded, and the dollars that we do have aren't flexible like state and local money. Um, and we know that the average student coming to Detroit schools have more challenges um, linked to the concentration of poverty. You know, what does that look like? Um, parents that struggled in school and not always um, comfortable advocating uh, for a strong and helping students at home. Managing multiple jobs, moving from home to home, trying to make 
uh, the payment on the heat bill. Um, um, again, moving from the east side to the west side, disrupting the educational process. And then students, by the time they're in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, wondering, where is this education going to take me? And should I just get in the workforce now um, or just be a part of the streets? Mm-hmm. You know, the other reality, and you know this well, is we all also can't say every Detroit child is the same. You know, within our school system, we have schools like CAS, which are, um, you know, serving mainly middle class students. And then we have other schools like Pershing that are uh, serving students in, 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 in deep concentrated poverty. So, uh, and we haven't even talked about the violence that students experience, you know, in schools in their neighborhoods that uh, dramatically impact just their um, well-being um, before going to school. But wraparound services can better support um, those challenges so students can focus on teaching and learning every day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the advocacy externally uh, that's needed and in some cases really st- starting to pick up, I think. To change the picture for uh, Detroit schools in terms of what you have to deploy. I mean, you talk about, for instance, uh, lowering the number of uh, teacher vacancies. Uh, that's, of course, related to lots of other uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, inputs in, in in the school system. And even when you're able to lower uh, those vacancies, uh, it seems like you've got to kind of uh, rob Peter to pay Paul in some cases. And so things, uh, you know, it's just, it's not the, it's not a universal solution. It's never a universal uh, solution because we just don't have enough. Um, so where are we with uh, this conversation, which started more than a decade ago here in Michigan about the, the very idea that equity is not the same. Equity means getting what people need to them, whatever that looks like. Uh, and I thought when we when we started that conversation, we'd get pretty quickly uh, to a place where um, uh, where we were doing it. We're, we're not quite there. Yeah. I, you know, one 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 thing that's happening in DPSCD is progress. So we are seeing, for example, right out of the pandemic, um, Last year being the most recent year where it was the, um, the first year after like the baseline of returning from the pandemic, that DPSCD showed more progress in literacy improvement, math improvement, and SAT, PSAT um, on average in the state of Michigan and on average in Wayne County and on average for district charter schools. So when, you, when you're running the system the right way, students respond positively. So that means that we are doing the right things and students are responding. The challenge is, is accelerating that um, uh, for greater scale and greater improvement. And that's our commitment in the next couple of years. But, you know, going back to the report, when I read that report and I think about 20 years as a superintendent, as a teacher, principal, dean, always in large urban school districts across the country, what I, what I say to myself is, when are we going to recognize that investment matters? And um, that that we are okay with investing more in children that need more. I think fundamentally that's the issue. Do we have the moral courage, and can we, can we create the political um, alliances and a bipartisan commitment to 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 equitably ensure that black children in this country have an equal opportunity? Mm-hmm. And we're still not there. And this is this is the same conversation. You you know, sometimes I read old free press articles and from the 60s and the 70s. It's the same conversation. Yep. You know, it's a little different, but it's the same. And, um, the, you know, the, the, 
the encouraging thing at some level is being a part of this council that talked about growing um, Michigan together and how do you increase um, population growth in Michigan. And there was bipartisan support among re- traditional Republicans and Democrats that that public education is a key to improving the state status um, and that you have to equitably fund, not only improve funding, but equitably fund. That Republicans and Democrats were both saying that. The problem in Michigan is you have to couple that with accountability. And that's what we don't have. We don't have a system of accountability. Now, you can't just talk Republican talk of of, of accountability and choice, but it's got to be every degree of accountability has to come with a degree of support. And support comes from funding and equitable funding, uh, which, honestly, Republican governors and Republican legislators have not gotten right in Michigan. And I'm I'm optimistic that moving forward— we can improve accountability systems, which have to be improved in Michigan, but also adequate, adequately fund schools and equitably fund schools, which, you know, that's the greatest political issue because, yeah. you know, we have a party that likes to divide black and white people um, and make it um, about uh, the seemingly about race and taking from one and giving to the other when there's actually more commonality between the black and white community on issues of funding and public education. Everyone benefits from that. But ultimately, you know, it becomes a don't take from my neighborhood to give to another neighborhood. Um, and that's why we continue to have um, the inequity that we have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today. And be part of the conversation that way. Let's start today with Arnold in Detroit. Arnold, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Cass. Mm-hmm. That graduate myself. Ah. So uh, <laughs> I grew up in Detroit, and uh, I, I still have uh, friends and family with Detroit police and firemen. Uh, what what your guest left out is he left out the federal funding. When you add in federal funding. For decades, Detroit public schools have spent more per pupil than your typical average suburban school. Currently, Detroit is spending $19,000 per pupil. The high schools, they spend more, like Osborne is way over $20,000 per pupil. That's much more than the typical suburban school that spends about $14,000 per pupil. One of the big reasons Detroit uh, public school students do, do poorly in academic achievement is not money, because for decades they've spent more money per pupil than the typical suburban school. It's, it's truancy and it's classroom dis, uh, disruption. The truancy rate in Detroit public schools averages somewhere almost one day per week per pupil. Then the other thing is classroom disruption. The classroom period is just disrupted between two to five times per period. It takes the, the, the teacher about five minutes to refocus the class. So there again, you have loss of instruction time of, of uh, anywhere from uh, uh, 20 to 30 percent. So, so first of all, Arnold, I really appreciate you calling and uh, being part of the conversation. I'm going to correct you before Dr. Vitti does uh, on the funding uh, issue you bring up. You're not wrong that uh, that a lot of federal money does come to districts like Detroit uh, that doesn't go to other districts. 
but that money is not generally applied to students in the district. Uh, that is targeted funding. Uh, a lot of it is at-risk funding. Even more of it, in fact, is for special education, uh, which uh, requires that you spend more to meet the needs of those kids. So your average child who goes to a Detroit public school, say my daughter, for instance, who also graduated from CAS uh, this year or last year in 2023, uh, she doesn't benefit from all that federal funding. And if she had gone to school, for instance, in West Bloomfield, where they use local uh, property taxes and the wealth that exists in that community to fund general uh, education in uh, in that in that district she would benefit so uh, that's a trope that Republicans have brought out for a long time uh, it's it's playing with numbers it's a manipulation uh, it's just not it's just not so uh, and so hopefully you'll go forward from here and and not keep repeating uh, what is essentially a lie uh, being told by conservatives about districts like Detroit at the same time, you're not wrong about the truancy issue, uh, the fact that, that we don't get enough kids into school uh, every day. That got worse, Dr. Vitti, during the pandemic. And I know that, that you have been working real hard to get more kids back. We're, we still have a profound problem there. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I think um, the caller was right that chronic absenteeism does impact student achievement. What we saw as um, late as early as last year is if a student misses nine or fewer days of school, they're three to five times more likely in DPSAD to be at and above grade level on the M-STEP. So that's grades three to eight. Um, and then um, college ready, um, three to five times more likely PSAT, SAT. So yes, um, absenteeism plays a role in negatively impacting student achievement. But that's what the report is talking about. The root cause of chronic absenteeism is concentrated poverty. And so if we, as a country, if we want to see students, many students in Detroit, come to school more often, we have to deal with the infrastructure challenges that we have in this country, which means accessible, adequate, uh, affordable health care. We have to deal with affordable housing and accessibility. Uh, we have to deal with a, a strong public transit system. If you just deal with those three issues alone, theoretically, and you adequately fund that differently in Detroit, so the average family has the same kind of comfort and peacefulness that a middle-class family has. The average middle-class family knows where they're going to sleep every day. They're not they, they might be stressed out about paying bills, but they generally can pay their bills. They're going to have heat. They're going to have water. Um, they're not going to move from three different locations in one year. Many, many, I would say half of our kids deal with those kind of situations annually. And I'm sorry, any child learning is going to be impacted on that those scenarios, even being sick, having access to a doctor, et cetera. So, you know, that's exactly what the report's talking about. Um, absolutely right about the federal funding issues. Let me be very clear. <laughs> Sit in my seat for five days, and you'll recognize that you don't have enough funding to deal with basic things. This morning, close Noble early because the boiler broke. Mm. Our, our average building in DPSCD is 80 years old and with, with inadequate annual investment in those buildings. Take your own home. If you don't invest in your home regularly, things are going to break down. Birmingham is not dealing, Bloomfield Hills is not dealing with a boiler breaking um, nearly um, uh, monthly in multiple schools. So I, I can't use federal money 
to repair a boiler. I can't use federal money to enhance transportation or put another bus line. I can't use federal funding to increase teacher salaries. That's the difference with federal funding. It's restricted and can only be used for certain things, not even to deal with some of our root causes. As a Republican, what I would advocate is allow me as a district superintendent to use that money flexible. Then we can talk about nineteen, dollars $18,000 per student and compete equally with Centerline, Southfield, um, or Bloomfield Hills. Sure, I, I, we can have a different conversation if you allow me to use that equitably. Yeah. And by the way, we serve way more children with special needs, which right. requires way more funding than the average suburban yeah. school district. I mean, that, that, those numbers look lopsided, but they aren't. They aren't lopsided in favor of districts like Detroit. Uh, Give me flexibility. I'll have the conversation about having more money than other yeah, districts. Yeah, uh, Arnold, really appreciate you listening and, and calling in. Let's uh, take one more call here before we end the segment. David in Detroit, go ahead. You know it's a good day when you're sitting in your car late for a meeting to talk about policy <laughs> and structural change in school systems in Detroit and Michigan, right? So uh, your guest, Dr. Vitti, had brought up, I think, an important uh, intersection, which is the population loss challenge. Uh, like it or not, DPS CDs brand before the CD was added and to today has been a part of the population loss in the city of Detroit. And the comparison of DPS CD raising uh, the boats to uh, improve against the rest of the county or the rest of the state in a failing overall environment seems a, a challenging sort of uh, uh, mental gymnastics as well. Uh, so if we want to fix this in the long term, Stephen, I was on your show several months ago asking Speaker Tate if it was time to uh, invoke a right to equality public education in the Michigan Constitution. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it seems to me if we don't shift the baseline, that debate on policy and funding is so inherently political in a structurally broken racist system that any policy on the margin that you're going to be able to impact for a short period of time isn't going to overall shift the baseline to positive. Yeah. yeah. So, the, uh, David, I really appreciate uh, you calling and making that point. Uh, I do remember that that conversation. Uh, Dr. Vitti, I'll give you a chance to, to respond to that. Should we be changing, I guess, the baseline expectation about uh, education? It's a good point. Um, you know, again, uh, having done this for 20 years, over 20 years now in multiple large urban school districts and in different states and, and now doing this work here, um, I, I can't disagree with the caller. Um, I, I think um, I have, you know, the board has compl- uh, contemplated a lawsuit uh, of some kind um, and, you know, some kind of constitutional language um, around a, a quality public education may be necessary to hold both parties accountable to what's necessary. So, I, you know, having done this work and been in the trenches um, in different levels, uh, I can't disagree. And, and it may be time for that because uh, we're waiting too long. Yeah. Uh, children children deserve better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Nikolai Vidi, always great uh, to have you here with us. Thanks for coming by to talk about this report. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. We're going to talk now with a scholar 
here on Detroit Today about why opportunity gaps persist based on race and ethnicity and what we need to do if we're serious about closing them. To talk more about this, we've got John Vallant here. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is left-center think tank. He is also the director of the Brown Center on Educational Policy at Brookings. Uh, John, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks, Stephen. Good morning. So let's talk about, uh, from a national perspective, the state of education inequity, how it has changed over the last few decades. And I especially want you to point out some places that are trying specifically to address inequity in different ways. Uh, I talk a lot about what's going on or what has been going on in Boston uh, here in our community uh, they are thinking differently about this from a money perspective. Uh, it's an example that I think uh, other districts could uh, could learn from. But but give us a thumbnail of of the national picture and and the bright spots. Sure. So I mean, if we're thinking about educational inequity across the country, it is severe. It has been severe for a very long time, which isn't to say that there isn't any good news. So one of the ways that we kind of keep track of those opportunity gaps is by tracking gaps in test scores. And if you were to trace test score gaps between black students and white students and between Hispanic students and white students from the 1970s to the present, they're only about half the size now that they were. So in the sort of uh, biggest picture terms, there has been some progress, but in a lot of ways, it looks like that progress has stagnated. And really since COVID, it looks like a lot of those gaps are starting to grow again. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we can talk about that. And, and to your point though, so um, it is the case, one of the, the strengths and one of the challenges of the system that we have here in the U.S. is we have a radically decentralized education governance system, yes. which means that localities and states have a whole lot of say over what they do. Um, and so we do see, I mean, if you, as you look kind of state to state, you do see pretty different patterns that arise from one place to the next. I'll say that one state that's getting a lot of attention these days is actually Mississippi. So Mississippi has seen uh, a sort of shrinking of some of those gaps at a much faster pace than a lot of other states. Mm -hmm. And there's an effort underway to understand why that is, but it looks like a good part of it is they really focused on early grade literacy and they've invested in pre-K. And Mississippi is sort of an unlikely um, hero story when it comes to policy reforms in a lot of ways. But there there has actually been, like we, we do know that um, you know, demography is not destiny when it comes to educational opportunity. And there are policies and there are practices you can put in place that really do make a big dent in some of those opportunity gaps. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about places, uh, other places that uh, that are that are stepping out ahead uh, and seeing seeing results. Uh, where should we be looking? Yeah. So I mean, as as you look across the country, we've had kind of an interesting past few years here because. Um, there has been some federal investment when it comes to COVID recovery funds, mm-hmm. and we've seen different strategies taken up by different places. And I think now we're just starting to see some of the returns on on those those investments, and some of the types of investments that seem like they they are paying off. So a lot of districts have experimented with tutoring programs. And tutoring can go very well, or it can go not so well. And it really it's a sort of a devil's in the details story about do you have uh, committed tutors and do you have kind of small tutoring groups and are you training your tutors? Um, but we are seeing some evidence that some of those investments in the high intensity uh, tutoring really do seem to have paid off. And then 
Um, we're also seeing it at sort of different pockets in different places, but Dr. Vitti, and in your last conversation, you talked a bit about uh, truancy and attendance, and attendance is a big issue nationwide, and we're seeing some places that are that are really being aggressive in trying to address attendance issues with one of the ways that looks particularly promising is to start conversations with families that are chronically absent to try to understand why it is, mm -hmm. because usually there's a reason there, and if you can have that conversation and the, and the conversation can be framed as a way of supporting and helping the family make sure they can get their kid to school, uh, it tends to be a much more productive conversation. And uh, we, I mean, if kids aren't going to school, they're not going to learn and we're not going to address those opportunity gaps. So really being thoughtful about how do we make that attendance conversation constructive and not punitive. Yeah. Uh, I also want to talk about the sort of uh, background issue here that's kind of looming, which is poverty. Uh, which, of course, yep. exacerbates uh, inequality. Um, it's an accelerant, I guess, uh, of sorts. Um, but there have been some things that, that we've done, especially since the pandemic, uh, that, that I think are, um, are attacking poverty in a different way. And I wonder if we're starting to see, or if we will soon start to see, you know, educational outcomes reflect that, uh, things like the child tax credit, uh, uh, some other measures that Congress has, has taken to try to ameliorate the effects of the, of the pandemic actually have lowered child poverty uh, in a way that we hadn't seen in a long time. And I wonder if that is also uh, something we should be banking on to, to close these gaps. So I think that's a great question. And the single best thing that we could do in policy when it comes to reducing educational opportunity gaps is to get kids out of poverty and away from the stresses that accompany poverty. And you're right that we did take a big step at a national level with an expanded child tax credit during COVID. Uh, we let that expire, which I think was outrageous mm -hmm. um, with respect to the number of kids who then sort of um, uh, fell back into poverty. There's actually some discussion now in Congress that suggests that we might get a sort of modest version of that coming back. And I think I think that's something to pay a lot of attention to. But I should also say that even if we so if, if we're able to address poverty, a lot of those um, educational opportunity gaps by race should close um, sort of in response, but but not all of them. And we know as we look nationwide that that gaps by race exist, even when you're looking within um, the same income and wealth groups. And a big part of that is that a lot of unequal opportunities in schools are really rooted in race. So we know about the ways that kids get picked for gifted programs mm -hmm. or kids get disciplined. And there, there are just, there are ways in which kids of different racial and ethnic backgrounds are discriminated against in schools. So a huge part of this in really like the place I would start is trying to get kids out of poverty and address some of those kind of core structural problems. But we shouldn't have the illusion that that is all we, we need to do or that that alone will sort do away with all of the gaps that we yeah, see now. Right. A colorblind solution is not really a solution to uh, racism or racial inequity. I think that's a really that's important right. point to make. Okay. Uh, uh, John Vallant, uh, Senior Fellow at Brookings and Director of the Brown Center on Education Policy at Brookings. Really great to have you here uh, to cap off this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen.
Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in Southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 1019 FN.